Hello to all you lovely listeners and welcome back to season four of Therapy Works. I'm your host, Judah Samuel, a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and now self-proclaimed podcaster. And these are my daughters. Hi, I'm Emily. And I'm Sophie. Each week, we invite you into our therapy room, where we'll be joined by a variety of voices, some well-known and some unknown. Together, we'll be navigating some of life's biggest challenges. That's right. We'll be diving deep into conversations about struggles people have faced or are still facing. We believe that sharing these stories is not just cathartic, but can also be profoundly healing. Absolutely. As fellow psychotherapists, we're here to help you, our wonderful listeners, expand your understanding of therapy and its transformative power. After each conversation, Emily, Sophie and I will reflect on what we've learned and how these insights can be applied to your own lives. It's our mission to prove that meaningful conversations, even those that contain difficult emotions, can be a source of growth, resilience and hope. Whether you're a long-time listener or just joining us for the first time, we're thrilled to have you with us on this journey. We hope that each episode leaves you with something valuable to carry into your own life. And without further ado, let's dive straight into this week's episode and start unpacking life's challenges together. So, Alain de Botin, I am delighted that you've joined our podcast and you're founder of the School of Life. You're a best-selling author and you're a trainee psychotherapist. And I love your new book, which we will talk about, The Therapeutic Journey, because it will relate to everybody who's listening to this podcast. But how I start all my conversations is a question of what is a challenge that you are facing or have faced? Look, I think the ever-present challenge, and it, and it weighs on me particularly with age, is um, to be calm and at peace in myself and with the world and not to take stresses that could be a four- to a nine or a 10. And I often feel that my life feels much more dramatic than it should. It feels like a roller coaster. And I keep aspiring for it to be like a calm sea. That's, that's the challenge, really. I'm, I'm driven by an intense longing for serenity, which, which is frankly elusive as yet, but it's what it's what keeps me intellectually excited, really, that, that longing for serenity. And that is really the, the lens through which I felt your book, A Therapeutic Journey, was taking you, in the sense, as you were speaking then, an image that came up a lot in your book that is both universal and obviously personal, is that you wanted to have the sort of tender heart of a child, of a small child, and the wisdom of an old man. And that would be the two kind of poles that would enable you to navigate the difficult times. It's a lovely image. And I think maybe the harder one of that coupling to recover contact with is the small child because much of what we do as we become adults is say goodbye to small children you know I'm always when my children were small I was always fascinated by the way they'd go 
oh, that one's only three and a half when they were three and three quarters. You know, <laughs> desperate need to push the younger person away oh, and deny them. Uh, and deny, of course, that, that everyone's been all ages. And I think the sort of guiding principle of psychotherapy, certainly in certain branches of it, is that unless that child that we were, and that because we were, we still are, paradox, but there we are, unless that child is okay, it's going to be difficult for any succeeding versions of ourselves to to be creative, free, kind, the rest of it. And that, that is a, a constant challenge. Because there is this kind of cynical, eyebrow-raising, like all therapists drag you back to your childhoods. Um, and certainly people, when they walk through my door coming to see me, they're wanting to solve the pain in the present and they have no intention of going back into the past. And yet, as you're saying, the child lives in us forever. And what I got from your book, and I'd love you to talk more about, is in some ways the unconscious scripts that we're not aware of, that were laid down from maybe 0 to 8 or 0 to 15, whatever the developmental matrix is that we go by. Those that we don't know, we act out and play out and do ourselves harm in the process. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yes, look, I share your your client's frustration. It's, let's be plain, maddening to have to think that who you are when you're in your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, 70s, has to do with what happened between the ages of zero and eight. Who wants to believe that? It's one of the most maddening, humbling, maddening things. But it's rather, I think in the book, I compare it to the way in which it took humanity thousands of years to accept that in a glass of water, there might be living tiny microbiotic life that have the power to kill not just one person, but kill a city. One glass of supposedly clear water would have things living in it. And I think that notion of the small thing with an amazing, extraordinary, painful impact is as true in psychological life. And I think similar sort of counterintuitive bravery is required. It's like, this thing looks clear, it's not. This thing looks fine, it may not be. And it, it took humanity so long to begin to take that idea on board. You don't hear any ancient Greek saying, mum and dad didn't really look after me and it's been a blow to my self-esteem. There's no Roman poet or Middle Ages uh, a scribe who's, who's, who's on record for detailing, making a connection between their adult agonies and their childhood experiences. It is the particular genius of the modern world. We could... They did say things like, know thyself. Yes, they did. But they trod pretty gingerly around the idea that discovery of the self was going to have to walk through the door of childhood experience. That, that is, yeah. that is a, as I say, the gift of the modern age. And I think that, look, it gives us a wonderful key to unlock what people do, as you say, very truly, what isn't known is acted out, that the acting out is the sort of uh, the echo of a misunderstood bit of the psyche. And I think one of the most helpful ideas in psychotherapy is the notion that when you see people behaving in so-called crazy or unhelpful or um, self-destructive ways, um, rather than saying, you know, they're just demented, to say the pattern of behaviour owes something to a previous period of life where probably, and this is the very moving idea, probably it made a lot of sense. 
at, at a certain point. So if we meet people, let's say, who, and we meet them all the time, who can't feel very much. They find it very hard to connect to others in relationships. And you think, oh, what's the point of that? That's a ridiculous. Why do they keep doing this? Well, if you go backwards, almost certainly there was a time when this enabled them to get through to the next stage of life. Because this was a were... lifesaver. This was a lifesaver. Yeah. If you meet somebody, let's say, who cracks jokes all the time, has a sort of slightly plastic persona where they're always the life of the party, you think, so annoying. Why can't they get down to the real <laughs> marrow of life? You go back in, in, in time. And probably there was a depressed parent, there was a, an ill sibling or something that meant that ability to stay ebullient and on the surface of things was, again, a lifesaver. And so being able to search for the logic of present behaviour in the past, and then to be able gently to loosen it and, and essentially remind a, a part of the past that the outer circumstances have changed and therefore the, the behaviour can afford to change. But these are the works of a lifetime. Julia, one of the, I, I mentioned this in the book, but it keeps striking me, is think of the way that children learn language. Between the age of zero and five, we are just these unbelievably absorbent machines that without anyone teaching us the first thing about grammar or logic, or we assemble hundreds, thousands of words and complicated grammatical constructions. And we just suck it all in while we're doing handstands in the garden or drawing buttercups in the kitchen. We are learning this language and we don't even remember. And in later life, if we try and learn another language, well, God forbid, it's going to be agony. You know, try and learn Korean when you've learned English or Finnish when you started off in Spanish. Good luck to you. It takes an age. And I think something similar goes on in the emotional sphere, where we learn as children, we learn the language, not of a particular grammatical language, but we learn an emotional language about who to trust, uh, who to be vulnerable with, where to hope, how to deal with envy, how to compete, how to succeed, how to fail. All of these things are being sucked in. And we have no clue that it happened, no more than we had any clue that we learned the subjunctive. No one sat down and taught us subjunctive. We just got it. And then it takes, you know, sometimes people go to therapy and they go, it's unbelievable. I've been in therapy for five years once a week and nothing's changing. And you want to go, okay, if you were learning Korean as a Finnish speaker and five years once a week and you go, why am I not fluent in this new language? You go, well, you might need to go and do this once a day, five hours a day. It's going to take a long time. But I and I agree with everything that you're saying is that our kind of emotional template mindset, the way we connect to the world is laid down for us in through our primary relationships, sibling relationships, I think, have been under kind of acknowledged as well as parental and maybe grandparent, but the very significant people in our lives. It could be an amazing teacher that, in fact, opened up. I've seen clients who had actually quite a sort of flatlining, disconnected childhood with their parents, but had a teacher at school who opened up whole worlds of emotional language through learning and books. Mm. So I, I don't think it's just parenting. I think it's the environment that we're in. And that, of course, we build these defences that one year of therapy once a week because they're hardwired are not going to unravel because the defences were there for a very good reason. They were lifesavers, as you said. I think one of the things that I was really interested in that I saw some research the other day, which it does link to what you're saying, but not completely, is that scientists discovered it takes approximately 400 repetitions to create a new synapse so that we, we're pattern 
meaning-making beings. We like patterns. Our minds like prediction because we like safety. And if it's predictable, it's safe. We're not going to be killed by the tiger. But when we play, we can create these synapses, these patterns, after 10 to 20 repetitions. And I was thinking about the difference of how a lot of your book, you bring the mindset of a child into the adult world and that play, art, music, language, um, Agnes Martin can take us back to an early emotional self. That our, So we can be very old, but our emotional feelings can be of a four-year-old or a 10-year-old. Like our capacity to fall in love can feel the same at 70 as it does at 17. And there's something about that I find very fascinating and also not really talked about. Mm. I think my mind's jumping to religion. So let's just have a think about Catholics and Protestants. And summarising brutally, Protestantism is a religion of, of a book, a text. And the idea is you don't need a building you don't need music, you don't need art. All you need is some words on a piece of paper, and that will connect you up to the divine and all the meaning of life, etc. Catholics start from a different point of view uh, in Christianity. They believe that we are creatures of the senses, and we're innately sensory. And so if you're going to try and have an impact on somebody, if you're going to try and get them to believe some extraordinary things about the foundation of the world and their place in the cosmos, you will need to invest in some golden angels, some incense, uh, 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 some cantatas by Bach, etc., etc., because you won't get there otherwise. And I think that the modern world is very Protestant in its approach, that we've really put the world of the senses in one corner, the, the beauty sphere. And that's for the that's for the fashion crowd. Oh, you're interested in beauty. Oh, you must go to a fashion show. R- rather than actually integrating. I'm sometimes struck by how you go to a therapist's office. Often the office will look terrible. And it's an, an unwelcoming, cold, drafty place. There's no thought. A therapist who might have spent years studying how the mind works has paid zero attention to the context in which they're trying to have an impact on another mind. And meanwhile, there are these people called interior decorators who've never given a moment's thought to the childhood of their clients or whatever. So we, we do live in very split worlds. And I think that if we're talking really about change and how change occurs... Everybody or, wants to change without changing, right? That's well, the conundrum. Yes, maybe we Or the pain of changing. Look, you're right. Everyone wants change and change is incredibly hard. And we have to be very curious, endlessly curious about what will bring about change. I think the the lens is opening up. There's no doubt that we're starting to get much more curious. People will say, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Maybe a cold water bath. The fact that psychotherapy has discovered that we have bodies. This was a very, very recent. I was about to say, yeah. Yeah, very recent (laughs) discovery. It's like, oh my God, you have a body. The body might speak. Yes, the body might speak and your shoulders might be aching to tell you something. Your lower back really has a story to tell. That's a fascinating thing about how it's the old psychotherapeutic insight, which is an emotion that hasn't been understood and hasn't found regular expression will haunt us. Act out. It will yeah. act out. And one of the areas it acts out is body. And I'm backs, sure backs, shoulders, digestion, sleep, all of these things. We tend to dump this in the hands of doctors who give us well-meaning 
attempts to prescribe pills and all the rest of it. But it is all interconnected. I think we're grasping that as a society much more than we ever have. Um, I do think, yeah, I think we're kind of recognising that our senses are the fastest portal into our beings. So what we see, what we smell, what we hear, um, what we touch, and that they fast track, they bypass our thinking, which can automatically block us. And I felt that very much in your book. And I also felt there's a kind of a natural joy that you're looking for through art, mm. through, but also this word tenderness, like that picture, that self-drawn portrait of Goya as a very old man, which was such a tender portrait of like achingly curious, you know, aching curiosity, and yet the body kind of <laughs> wasn't quite making it. And I don't know where I'm going with that, except that whatever age we are, we carry our previous ages. It's interesting that the, the, the thought about tenderness, because I think tenderness is a really important feeling atmosphere. And I think for a long time, it, it, it takes quite a lot of experience to think the adult in front of me has got a child inside, has got a child itself, and it is vulnerable. For, for a long time, one doesn't really dare to have that thought because other well, because people... Because everyone puts on this right, armour, like, so I'm armored. all right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But just to, this is where just uh, having spent a certain time on the planet just does help that thought to go through. You just think, okay, I'm going to hold my nerve here, even though this person does seem very adult. They're a high court judge. They're a policeman. They're a pilot. Or you, a best-selling or, author, yes, me talking to you. Yes, exactly. Whatever it is. That actually, I'm just going to take a leap of faith. They are going to have to be vulnerable because that's the human condition. And I think that there's, it's always a surprise, isn't it, that people suffer as much as we do? Because it's the, the conundrum that we know ourselves from the inside, but we only know other people from what they present and what they choose to tell us. And that's always an edited version. And so it remains a sort of constant surprise to find in others what, what we've known for a long time is in ourselves. And I think this is where art is this vital kind of conduit where we find bits of ourselves. There's a lovely quote from Emerson where he says, in, in the minds of geniuses, we find our own forgotten thoughts. And, and the idea that geniuses are not different from anyone else, but they have a better ability to hold on to thoughts that actually belong to everyone, but that most of us trample on or ignore because we think, oh, well, that's not important. That's not where importance lies. There's always that quality. And I remember feeling that when I first read Proust, and Proust is a novelist that you think, well, he's a, a great, one of the greats. God knows what this guy's talking about. So you pick him up and He's sweet. He's cosy. He's telling us what it felt like when his mother brushed his cheek when he was a when he was a boy. When what it felt like to drink a glass of cold water after he'd come in from the garden. All these little sensory moments, incredibly intimate. And we think, hang on a minute, that's me. That's all of us. That's what we're like. And so we're constantly alienating ourselves from who we are, and then refinding ourselves. And we never quite. Because I, I think it's constantly a sort of slight defiance of, as you say, the armoured front that we put up. And part of that armoured front is, our understanding of it is the thanks of work like Donald Fairburn, who 
recognise that as a child, it's more threatening for us to see our parents as bad. And so we turn the fear or the anger or the um, emotions that are not allowed and not expressed as a child against ourselves that we're bad and mm. we're angry. We've we're, There's something wrong with us, which is why we're not being picked up or soothed or... And actually, the, what I was wondering, for people who are listening, rather than going to the kind of negative of what makes, creates that version of us, but what would a good enough, the Winnicott term, childhood look like? What would you propose to people, if they're thinking about themselves and their childhood, mm. what would a good enough childhood look like? I'm almost tempted to say that it's not that complicated. And of course, it's immensely complicated to bring about, but it's relatively easy to see. But let's run through some of the features of, of really what we're saying is love. What does parental love consist of? Again, it's the, an idea you find in so many psychotherapeutic sources. The notion that we are properly seen and that our feelings are honoured. I, I was watching a, a family, a, a holiday resort in the summer, and it was a very nice family, kind family, you think. But this child was saying, I, this little child was saying, mummy, I don't want to be here. This place is horrible. I wish we hadn't come here. And the mother said to, to the kid, don't be so silly. This place has cost a lot of money and you're very happy here. Yeah. When what we long to hear is someone who recognises the, the oddity of our kind of position. And when we say, I want, as a kid, I want to kill the headmaster, doesn't say, don't be so silly, the police would come, but says, something's really frustrating you. And immediately the weight is lifted and we feel heard, etc. So, so you know, in terms of what does love consist of, a huge amount of that love is, just, is, is about being heard, being seen, being witnessed. Being allowed to be you. Being allowed it? to be you. And you have rupture, but you have repair. So yes. inevitably, it's an imperfect. And I think it has to be imperfect. Perfect would set you up for absolute disaster for life. So good enough is very much like, of course, you're going to see your mum or dad or whoever your parental figure is failing, but they're failing where they acknowledge their failure and they try again. Yes, because you're right. If home were perfect, one would never leave home. And my goodness, that would be trouble. So we have to be disappointed so that we think, Oh, silly old people, we're, we're going to go off and, and give it a shot. And that's a wonderful kind of impetus, the, the impetus to, to outdo your parents uh, and do it better than them. Fantastic. That's why human race keeps, uh, keeps going. I think another thing is that your, um, your parents can bear to be a bit boring. I, I think it's very troubling for a child if their parent is the centre of attention, hasn't been heard enough and needs to dominate everything. Just slightly predictable, dull person. Is, is, is quite relaxing, I think, for a child and allows them to, to find themselves. And I, I think the role of a parent is... a Because it gives a, them space. Yeah. Do you mean? Because in the psychic space, as it were, the environment, if the parent is charismatic, performing, talking, delivering all the time, the child shrinks. Whereas if the parent allows a bit of space for the child to be themselves, they can take up the space and inhabit their whole being in connection, being observed, being allowed, being seen and loved for who they are. I think so, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Well, I say, oh, that's going to make the child an egoist. But as you suggested earlier, egoists are people who've not been heard enough, not people who've been heard too much. You, you don't make an egoist by listening a lot to people. You make an egoist by sticking them in a cupboard and telling them yes. to shut up. That's the fast route to an egoist. Yes. The beginning of your book and the kind of process through your book is that we, most of us suffer. I, I actually don't know anyone who hasn't suffered, but then I am inhabiting a particular world. <laughs> but I think that life is both moments of joy and moments of suffering. And at times, the suffering overwhelms what we know how to manage and that we come to a point where we may have a, a breakdown or a version of a breakdown where we can no longer have the resilience to just get up and keep pushing through, that we were threadbare. There's nothing left in the tank. And that is when therapy and the ways of support that you and I think and talk and work in is the kind of, is it the last, is it the place people have to go and what is your kind of view of that therapeutic journey of what people need to go through and what they will receive? I think the key word there that you said is, is overwhelmed, what it means yeah. to be overwhelmed. And I think, you know, it's, it's what we least want. Who, who on earth wants to be overwhelmed? Being overwhelmed means that you have to do something that many of us are really uncomfortable with, which is to reach out to other people, not in a just a friendly social way, but really in an urgent way. And that isn't a comfortable thing for any adult to do, because adulthood is supposed to be about resilience and ability to cope with everything, etc. And so you're to be thrown onto the sort of mercy of others, to be thrown onto, to depend on the love of others. Let's use that word love. It, I don't mean romantic so love. Exposing. It, so exposing. You're so vulnerable. So exposing. To say, I'm lost, I can't cope anymore. But I also think my goodness, how we grow, hopefully, through such an experience. Because, um, well, if you've, if you've been through it, if you then spot anybody else in that situation, you'll know what to do. You'll see its legitimate place in, in life. Um, and I don't know, it just generally has a chance of making you a, a kinder, more connected person. Um, and also, of course, it's a royal route to self-discovery. Because often, what leads people to breakdowns or moments of kind of collapse are just things that they've been warding off, ideas, thoughts. Suppressing. Yeah, suppressing. And you must know in your work that the moment that people come to therapy tends to be a moment of crisis because who, who would bother otherwise? And crisis, by, by crisis, we normally mean that an old defensive structure has collapsed. Maybe we were putting all our energy into our work and we thought, right, if I get the work sorted out, if I hit a certain income figure or if I get a certain number of this or that, that will be fine. And then that breaks down and then you're thrown back onto there's really large questions which one might have been warding off, like, am I lovable? And I think that's... Is there something wrong with me? Yes, yes, yes. And it's such a... Talked about Christianity, of course, it's all founded on love and being seen. And you want to look at that through a psychoanalytic lens and it's rich pickings. But yes, we want to know that we can be seen, that we can be loved, despite uh, our failures, despite our flaws. Uh, we're terribly confused about that word love. But I think we're only 
really starting to understand love and we see it as a form of compassion as well for what is broken, what is unsteady, what is uncertain, which is much closer to what a parent does for a child, that the, the parent looks at the stumbling child and feels love as they see how hard it is for them to keep going. And I think that's a model for all love, really. That, that, and that's, of course, relationships become so much richer when they shift from that romantic admiration model towards that more compassionate model. Of course, sometimes our partners drive us crazy and we don't want to extend that compassion to them. But when we can, it's a very rich field. With that idea of life is difficult and we need relationships, we're wired to connect to others. And yet those primary relationships that break down can potentially be a breakthrough when it releases us from the kind of maladaptive coping mechanisms that just aren't working anymore and keep the world out but not just keep the world out keep yourself from yourself mm. and so that in some ways that's the cruelest aspect of it is that you're denying yourself this I, I don't really like the idea of the true self I know you talk about it because I think true sounds like there's almost like this crisp Instagrammy version of yourself that is perfected and that the true self is ever-evolving in a way and requires grit and endurance just to take the shit sometimes. It's not this ethereal, beautiful, romantic version of yourself that or this skippy, happy one. It's this one that sometimes can keep going anyway. Yes, just in defence of the true self. I've okay. Got a, I've got a, not, not to be too technical for your listeners who might have absolutely no interest in Big well, names no, of, what it is, so maybe you describe but, it. Well, Winnicott has this idea that all of us are made up of the true self and the false self, that the true self needs a certain amount of runaround time, Winnicott suggests, in order for personality to develop um, properly. So in other words, we need a chance to express what we truly feel, which could actually be, and here I, I don't agree with your Instagram thing, because it's actually messy aggressive, yeah. nasty. Full really, of hate, envy, hate. Yeah, yeah. jealousy. But we, but we need that ability to express that in order that then the demands of the world, captured by the term the false self, can be born um, adequately. That, that all that time when we have to say, I'm fine, thank the you. The front we put on. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine, thank you. How are you? We, we, <laughs> we need to have had a certain amount of screaming alone and being tolerated for that before we can bear all those polite rigmaroles. And the people pleaser, that proverbial figure of the people pleaser is someone who doesn't feel that their true self has, has ever been able to be seen and, and accepted. And therefore, is constantly presenting this sort of front. They're locked in a false self position. And their challenge is, can they get back to something more authentic? Can they say a little bit more about who they are and what they feel? Because they're dying from falsehoods. And there's something about the people pleaser which I think all I think all of us have parts of all of these things yeah. most of the time. It's like it's not like once you've had you know, twenty five years of therapy, you're then entirely sorted, and you don't have a people pleaser. I always think with you, Anna, the more polite you are, <laughs> but because you are incredibly polite, <laughs> the, the more dangerous the, the, it is. <laughs> yes, yes prob probably. I won't deny that. <laughs> I won't deny that. But where? Beware polite When you people. speak slowly, incredibly Be politely, it's like, oh, shit. polite people. <laughs> yeah. Look, you, you're right. There's always a tension between falsity and truth. And too much truth is a problem. There are those people who can't help, but we watch them sometimes with horror, who can't help but at all moments 
have a bid for total authenticity. So when it's their exam time, they have to write in the exam paper, I hate this stupid course. <laughs> Those who wrote this book are, are, are silly. And you think, oh my goodness, they're heading for a Z. And they could have actually... So they have this, in a way, that they're... Their hold on their own integrity is so fragile that at all times they, they feel the need to try and be truthful. And then at the or rebel, really. It's a sort of fuck you, though, isn't it, basically? Yeah. But then there are the people at the other end of the spectrum who can never break out of the sort of straitjacket of politeness. And so obviously health requires some in the middle and the ability to, Negotiation. to, to move across the boundaries. But you, you were mentioning love. And I think the, the fascinating thing about love is that even though we all think that we want love, Love is an incredibly hard thing. It's risky business, To achieve, right? absolutely. And so all of us are expert, or at least many of us are experts in what one could call distance management, that while we say that we want to be close, actually we're brilliant at pushing people away and making sure that that dinner doesn't quite go well or that, that nice tender moment of sabotage, just so that we can be sure that our integrity, which we built up through isolation, can be maintained and it's terribly... well, but it's more the fear of abandonment isn't it if they really yes. saw me if they really yeah. knew me if i really let them in to all of me they will then be as disgusted by me or as appalled by me as i am then i'm really in trouble and there's that terribly poignant way in which you know a friend will go out on a date and you'll say how was it and they'll say yeah, i don't know they were a little bit they were really nice but a bit that's and such can, a bad word you can tell that there's something wrong. And really, probably what your friend is trying to say is, I sense that this person wasn't going to treat me as badly as I need to be treated in order to feel I'm in love. They, they threaten Because that's to, familiar. Yeah, they threaten to be nice to me. So I've got to get rid of them. And it takes an a, a awfully long time before we can be in a position to tolerate kindness. I think it does take an awfully long time because it's really terrifying. People say things like, I, I'm so worried my relationship might not succeed, but the real worry is that it does. <laughs> That's the worry. That's the scary thing, because imagine yeah. if that would Because then you're at risk. You're really at risk. So we need to change direction because Christmas is just coming. And Christmas, as a parallel to a therapeutic journey, is very untherapeutic for most families. and. I was wondering if you could mine your wisdom about what you've learned. And I really recommend this book. There's so much wisdom and also knowledge and insight in these beautiful photographs. But is that and the kind of deep thinking that you've done, Anna, which I really appreciate. I feel like you've given me a book that saves me reading hundreds of other books. <laughs> I can just read this one and then I can feel like I know stuff. Yeah. Uh, um, but yes, Christmas is really the pain of the unsaid, which is we're together with people who mean on paper a lot to us. They, we've had deep bonds with them. And for so many of us, there are we are unable to communicate what we really want to communicate. Get what we really need. Yes, isn't get what it? we is really that need. The same? Well, is that I don't think that's the same thing. I think it's two different things. But what you've said brings to mind for me is that there's a sort of unconscious thing that maybe with mum and dad or with my brother or with my in-law or with my adult child, whoever it is, this time we're going to make it. This time they're going to give me the hug. I'm going to feel loved. And I'm really going to come alive. And you go at it and you may even get a little taste of it. And then you get the normal kind of awful death stare or 
they get drunk again or they may sneer about your white sauce, your bread sauce. And then you have this awful cascading sense of failure. And here we go again, back to that familiar, awful place of kind of misery. The reason for this is that we're simply not careful enough. We don't give this enough thought. When we say we're preparing for Christmas and we get the turkey and the... It's like presents. What what we really need is psychological assistance. What we would ideally need is someone who comes in, probably an outsider, comes into the family and goes, right, a little interview with every single member around the table. What's on your mind? What are the things that have been painful? What are the messages? What are the plates we're carrying from our parents? Yes. we're bringing to this Christmas. Yes, essentially what we need is group therapy. We don't need we don't need a turkey. We need group therapy. <laughs> Properly administered group therapy where we're able to commute family therapy. What would be the question? What do we all want or what is it that you're feeling, fearing? What is the question in family therapy? I think there wouldn't be one, but a, a few definitely. What do you want from the group? What do you want to say? But, but you haven't been able to say, what would you like to be recognised? But I think generally the area's got to be the unsaid, isn't it? It's, it's the yeah. weight of the unsaid. And the reason why we get so many banged dishes in anger and, and snipey comments is that, is that there's this, all this stuff behind the scenes that can't be expressed. So, so a safe channel. How could they prepare themselves? Yeah, one of the things to do is also to act slightly against type. So because people get put into roles in the family, oh, oh, you're the upbeat one, you're the melancholic one. And if you reverse your role, change your role, the other person then has to as well. And you get some fascinating sort of shifts, things start to shift. So rather than being sullen and aggressive with your mother, if you suddenly start to be quite solicitous and generous towards it, then she'll have to do something different. And so so being able to step out of a role might be one one of the ways. So we're coming to the end and I was wondering about winter, seasons, dying, mortality. You write very beautifully about winter in the book and we're in winter now. So I was thinking part of a breakdown is actually going into a winter of yourself where you don't have to flourish and be springy, where you can look at your roots and maybe feed your roots and allow time to just breathe in and out rather than keep having to push through. Look, I think seasonality is deeply frightening and depressing at a psychological level, by which I mean the constant cycle of moods to which we all seem condemned. We are constantly vulnerable to grief and loss and moments of reversal and then moments of hope, etc, etc. And I think it's it can be easy to think there's something unnatural in this cyclicality, that there must be something wrong with me. And I think that we're making life harder for ourselves than it needs to be. If we have to live through cycles, let's at least accept that we have to live through these cycles and make the best of it. And I say that for people who've had mental reversals, one of the most dangerous things... That's quite a nice term, isn't it? Mental reversal. Yes. But you know, when people say things like, I'm better now, great, I'm better. And you want to say, "Mm, steady on. You're feeling better now. But maybe tomorrow you won't be. And that's okay too. It's as important to think about the fragility that might be up and coming tomorrow as it is to celebrate the strength of today. Because we can be overambitious and get, then get into trouble. So I think a real modesty about our mental states seems... You, you, you get this in, in people who are convalescing from, from illnesses. They're, they're, they'll say to each other, how are you today? Oh, a little bit better today. Bad. Not too bad yeah. today. But, you know, they're, 
they're steady. They're, they're aware that knee that's been giving them trouble for a long time. Who knows? It may go again. So they're just taking care. Of course, they're extremely grateful for any moments of happiness and well-being that they get. And I think we can learn a little bit about how we should be in relation to our minds from that. It's like, well, maybe now things are okay. They might not be. Conversely, if they're not okay, well, maybe spring will come. So a, a kind of seasonal modesty of the mind, that seems a useful trick. Yes, in the sense of, I really hate that, like I'm winning at life, mm. those kind of extreme memes. And I think what you're saying is that when, in whichever season we're in, whether we're in a spring and we're feeling really abundant and have full of potential and things are going well, that we also hold that there is a winter and there is a dark time. But when we're in winter, I don't think of winter as a bad thing, by the way. I think of it as a necessary part of who we are. And I think in the same way, a mental reversal is our body telling us what our mind won't let us know, that we just have to stop, stop mm. trying, stop keeping going and just let whatever you have to face be faced. And Julie, this is a topic you know so much about, but that word mourning doesn't only apply to, to losses of, of people, it applies to losses of all of sorts course. of things. And I think every day, every week requires that we're probably mourning something. And therefore, of course, there are moments of pensiveness, withdrawal, reflection, sadness. Regrouping. Yeah, yeah. regrouping. It's, it belongs to everyone. But holding hope when you're mourning is what gives you the capacity to feel the, the dark, if you like. But also holding that the dark can be around the corner with or without us knowing. We, we can't, can't ever know the future. So like keep the joy in the day, but know that you can't predict your future. Kind of keeps you, when you talked at the beginning to bring us back full circle, in some ways when, when you're wanting to live a kind, I don't think balance exists, of course it doesn't, but if you're wanting with the ups and downs to try and negotiate as much as you can to kind of not, go too high or too low while still having joy. Because you don't want to be like just... Because some people are just... The worst thing they want is to feel bored. They almost create a drama because they don't mm. feel alive. Mm. So I don't quite know what I'm saying, but I think it's something like allowing what is to come through you, the good and the bad. Mm. Allowing what is to come through you, that's a very nice thing because, of course, so much of the, our mental structure is not allowing what's in us. And, and you started with the word therapy. Therapy aspires, I think, to be a place where we can let a little bit more of what's actually going on into our minds and feel better as a result. By being heard. Mm. I think that's a really lovely place to stop, Anna. Thank you so much. Thank you, Julia. Now, listeners, it's that time of the show that many of you eagerly anticipate each week, the moment when I'm joined by my two incredible psychotherapist daughters, Emily, who's a child psychotherapist, and Sophie, who's an adult psychotherapist. Let's hear what they have to say about today's enlightening conversation. This is our final episode of the season, talking about Alain de Botton. And really his therapeutic journey, although it's voiced through his book and our discussion. And I wonder if there were things that came up for you that you want to reflect on. 
Yeah, I thought it was such a interesting sort of wide ranging conversation, kind of sort of covered vast territories of therapy and humanity and philosophy. I really enjoyed it sort of quite near the beginning of your conversation talking about play and the senses and he was talking about sort of us living in a sort of in the West, living in a sort of Protestant styled culture. And and you had that really interesting fact that I'd love to know the source of, Mum, um, about play sort of speeding up the forming of uh, synapses. Well, I was thinking about the different sort of portals, I guess, for which change or connection can happen. And you were sort of saying maybe the body is the fastest, actually, the sort of senses. And I thought, well, I wonder if it's the fastest or just they're the least plumbed within our kind of therapeutic tradition. We're so well honed in how to use talking within the sort of therapeutic tradition as a as a sort of portal of change and really not or at least not with any of the trainings i've had the same level of depth by any means in how one might move movement or smell or creativity obviously there are people who've who've spent lifetimes honing that but it's a bit like saying if we'd only ever used movement in music someone going what about talking and then it'd be like wow like talking this whole vast <laughs> possibility of another way that we could do this um and i was just yeah i was thought a bit about my own practice and how um i still keep probably quite limited lines through which even though there's a lot of spontaneity in this sort of process not in terms of mediums or portals that wide and um and i was also thinking oh there's sort of also no fun without rules isn't there so there's kind of this balance <laughs> where to play, you need to feel safe, right? So it's not just like, yeah, let's just bring it all in. Wanting a scaffolding of practice around these different ways or mediums of... You probably do a lot more of it, Em, obviously, yeah, working with children. I do, because lots of children don't really talk, particularly young children. Teenagers, I usually do some creative things, um, but it sort of depends a bit on the teenager and what they like. Uh, but young children, I mean, most of the work is done through play. I see a lot of young children who are still developing the capacity to self-regulate. And often the ones that I see are the ones that find that harder. And using the senses is really the most effective way to self-regulate. Mm. So even just things in my room that I do that are fun, that are playing, also help with that. So things like pushing. So I have Play-Doh and you like making something in the Play-Doh, but you're pushing really, really hard. And those sorts of things that you can do with really, really small children that are using the senses to help build those self-regulation skills. But yeah, I mean, when you work with children, most of the work you do is sort of through play or creativity, um, particularly young children. I was just going to say, I did a training uh, sort of with a woman called Karen Treisman. It was just a short one hour thing, but she talked about an idea I've often suggested with adult clients is keeping a sensory box of kind of sensory soothing things like Play-Doh, like nice scents, like uh, photos of people that they love and feel safe with that they can kind of get out, isn't it? And it's like in those moments, you can imagine yourself having this dysregulated little child inside who needs to do all those things, even if you're in your adult body yeah i liked what alan said about the um thinking about the little part of yourself and um my supervisor suggested that i now have in my room which are russian dolls <laughs> and mm, it's a really lovely yes. way of thinking about all the different parts of yourself and yes. a sort of tangible way of thinking about this is the big me 
but I contain all of these other littler parts of me. And when certain things happen or I have certain emotional states or even actually just allowing myself to be free and play, how can I connect to that little person inside of me? Love that. As I was listening back, A, I felt I was incredibly vocal, which I guess because it wasn't so much a therapy session is okay. But I was just, when I was listening, it's like, Oh my god! I just felt like you were like the eager, eager pupil in the classroom, where you're like, "Oh, I was!" Oh, <laughs> like you kept putting your hand up. <laughs> also, a bit of intellectual sparring too. There was, well. I think there was quite a bit of sibling rivalry between two therapists, rather than me kind of sitting back and being the therapist. But also, he the book sparked lots of thoughts and ideas in me, and so. I, I couldn't sit on myself. I was, in, su- in some way, as you two were talking, I felt the expression and the kind of creativity in me kind of coming out. You just sounded really keen. Um, I mean, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when that's better or worse. But <laughs> I think what was interesting, too, is that it was such a rich, creative discussion, as you say, Mum. And yes, I don't really feel like I know very much about Alan himself no it was it was really more about his sort of therapeutic journey and the richness of the book but it was sort of interesting to get to the end and be not sure that I know much more about him like his journey of how he came to be so interested in this world and create the school of life so I think I was just left also with a lot of questions as well as a lot of richness actually that's such a good point I should have said at the beginning of the conversation with him is that that was the deal that we struck was that it wasn't going to be a therapy session it was going to be or a therapeutic session it was going to be more looking at therapy um, and in relation to his book and in some ways I think he was most himself when he was talking about love and talking you know about different ways of being in the world he is as he said most himself but so, but that was the deal that we that I wasn't. It wasn't going to be like that. Ah, um, that makes sense. It makes you know my head linked to a bit of the conversation where you and Alan were sort of going back and forth about the true self and the false self. Um, oh yeah, and I, we disagreed. Yeah, didn't we? and I disagreed, but also basically agreed in the end, didn't you? But um, yeah, I do think it's one of the sometimes the misunderstandings of therapy, or, or almost maybe part of the process of someone going through very big therapeutic change, that the goal is somehow to always be speaking out your authentic self. Like, um, I think there's a phrase from you, mum, or I don't know, a sort of pr- promiscuous almost honesty um, that you have, that, I that, that somehow that false who. self is inherently a bad thing. And obviously it can be a suffocating thing, as you talked about, or it can be you've created a false self that so deeply um, mismatches from your true self that it causes a great deal of suffering. But I think there's often I've seen, like when, in my training or with clients, there can be almost, that's almost part of the journey is they sort of shed the old false self and there can be a phase where they can be quite hard to live with when they're wanting to always speak the truth and unable to bear false social situations or small talk or often people lose friends in that phase, they might end relationships in that phase, things they maybe genuinely needed to shed, but a very a deep intolerance of that kind of, um, whether it's politeness or 
just a way of being of accommodating the existence of other people in the world that then over time kind of reforms in a way that is more bearable. That feels definitely true to me. And there was a version of it that was true when I was training as a therapist. I mean, I think training as a therapist should come with a kind of government health warning that Mm -hmm. it puts pressure on your relationship because you bring, you know, everything that was at wherever we were studying, whether it was sex or your inner child or I don't know, all the different things I would then bring home and, you know, push buttons um, in Michael and your dad. And so it's 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 quite uh, it's exciting, I think, in some ways and quite good, but also demanding. Did you find that? Em? It's funny because by the time I did my therapy training, even though I was really young when I did my therapy training, I'd, I'd had a lot of therapy. <laughs> and so yes, yes. It, I, I, I really noticed that a lot of people were going through that experience. And I, I sort of was a bit like, oh, like I want I want to go through that experience. I had the same. But I feel like it wasn't like a, something falling from my eyes. Whoa, like I'm suddenly connecting all these dots. Because I, I feel like, partly because growing up in our family, well, obviously therapy was a thing. And then having had a lot of therapy already, even though I was like 20 something, it wasn't like that for me. Oh, my God. My therapy training was like a drug. I was like, I couldn't believe it. It was amazing. And the sort of depth of honesty and the crying and the acting out and the... You know, I just ate it up. I just loved it so much. And every tutor I looked at thinking, I want to be you. I want to be you. I want to be you. <laughs> well, thank God for us. <laughs> that was your reaction. <laughs> yeah. I really had never thought, which maybe was stupid, about how thinking about how our childhood shapes us is such a modern phenomenon. And that Greeks didn't think that, Romans didn't think that. And I was like, oh, like, yes. What, like, I, I just had never really sort of pinpointed that. And I think one of the incredibly satisfying things about, the, about psychotherapy right now is that these theories that we've had for years and years and years, really since Freud, where we sort of think about our early childhood experiences as really shaping us, is now being so backed by neuroscience, where we really know that most of your brain development happens in the first few years of life. Actually, a really essential period of life is even before you're born, during pregnancy. And it feels to me incredibly sort of satisfying that these theories that were sort of developed without having the neuroscience are being really, really supported. And obviously, practice has changed since Freud, but that sort of fundamental idea around our infancy, our early childhood as being so essential in shaping how we work, how we're wired, how we are in relationships, I think is incredibly interesting and yeah, satisfying. And the other thing that it really made me think about was how we are wired to connect. So when we are infants and little children, we don't just need food and drink, we also need connection and physical affection. And I imagine that both of you also learned about it in your training, but the Harry Harlow experiment where mm -hmm. he was actually a really cruel experiment but with an interesting outcome where he had little baby monkeys and he removed them from their mother and he put them in a cage with a wire mother which was just made out of wire and a cloth mother and 
the wire mother was the one that provided the food. So all the food for the baby monkeys was put in there. And the sort of existing thought at the time was really that attachment was born out of the fact that you need food to live and therefore you're attached to your the people around you because they're the ones that physically help you stay alive. But what this experiment showed was that all the baby monkeys had spent significantly more time with this terry cloth mother that didn't provide anything in terms of nutrition, but provided a sort of vague version of comfort. Yeah, a sort of softness. And would just go to the wire monkey for food and then go back to the cloth monkey. And if something sort of scary or out of the ordinary happened, again, they would go to the cloth monkey and I think it was sort of the first scientific showing of actually we are also wide, wired for, to need physical affection and physical connection. Yes, and it's, as sort of attachment theory has evolved, hasn't it? There's um, with Bowlby and Ainsworth, Mary Ainsworth, they talked about attachment styles, you know, which probably many, some of our listeners would have heard of a secure attachment, avoidant attachment, and anxious attachment, and then disorganized, which are all different sort of patterns of relationship that are formed with our primary carers. And it made me think in the interview with Alan when he was talking about how hard it is to let yourself be loved and how actually we're more afraid often of being loved and being close than we are of um, of being left. And I thought, oh, well, it depends on your attachment style. <laughs> and, I was, you know, that's true, I think, particularly of avoidantly, in theory, attachment attached people. And we are all on the spectrum. It's not sort of a black and white thing. But... Um, that, that then often the fear is merger and loss of self. And um, whereas people who are anxiously attached tend to be more rather than, oh God, I'm going to be dissolved by this relationship. I must keep my distance. It's more needing constant reassurance or feeling very needy or anxious all the time that their partner's going to leave them. Both of them are protecting against the fear of not being loved. They're both defenses um, to manage relationship and connection but they do look quite different. And in fact, often in relationships, avoidant and anxious people pair up because they kind of <laughs> uh, slot. There's a quite uh, sort of interesting book of this, a question for you in relationships called Attached by Dr. Amel Levine and um, Rachel Heller, who just talk about different attachment styles and how they pair with other attachment styles and, and the kind of dance that often that happens. But um, it's very common for avoidant people to end up in relationship with anxious people and act out a whole set of, dissatisfying relationships as a result <laughs> yeah that's really interesting so at the end of our season i really in this case really want to thank anna for his time and his knowledge and openness with us em and soph i really want to thank you for all that you've contributed to the season and really thank our listeners for diving in and joining us and being such loyal listeners and for all of you to let you know that we now have the video on YouTube as well, if you prefer to watch it and listen to it. We also have the Therapy Works newsletter that you can subscribe to. And on that note, if you think this is an episode that others would value, do share it and do subscribe to the podcast so that you can get it every week. Many thanks. Thanks.